Well, I am so excited, man. We're going to be, we're starting the day. We're going through a brand new verse-by-verse series in the book of Colossians. And uh, the name of our series is Rooted. And I want to start off with our series, with our theme verse you know, for our series, because it's found in Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Look at that next word, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So being, being rooted and grounded in the word of God is one of the marks of a growing church. I mean, growing spiritually and and even growing numerically. And that's what we're going to be looking at today as we start our study in the book of Colossians. And so this morning, the title of the message is The Marks of a Growing Church. And so, man, back in February, I had begun to pray about, you know, after Easter was over, Lord, what do you want to do? What series do you want us to go through? What book do you want us to go through? And I was praying about this, and I'm telling you what, I was going back and forth. Sometimes I'd even wake up in the middle of the night, that would be on my mind. Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about between the Old Testament and the New Testament as a series. Are we going through a book, Lord? What? And, and I was praying, I never could land on anything firm, and it was just starting to, you know, bother me. And, and so I kept praying and praying, and Colossians just kept coming back to me. And I thought, oh, I don't know, maybe that's it. Maybe I'll go pray about something else also. But I just kept going back to Colossians. And so, man, I'm just so excited. That's kind of where we landed at. So we're going to be going through a 13-week series. And, and I want to give you guys some background on the book of Colossians, and an introduction on the front end, and why this letter was written. Because that way, we can begin to build on it each week as we continue in this awesome, awesome book. And so... Anytime that you're reading a book in the Bible, there's three questions that you want to always answer to help you kind of understand about that book. And this is why, by the way, if you have not invested in your spiritual growth and buying yourself a study Bible, I would highly recommend that. Because if you have a study Bible, they always answer these, these three questions right at the very beginning of a book. And so I want to look at that. And so it's helpful to know, one, who wrote the book? Now, you can't always know who wrote the book, okay, because sometimes some of the books in the Bible, we just don't know who the author is. But if we can know the book, it's very, very helpful. And then the third one was, who is it written to? That's really important right there. But then the most important question is why? Why was it written? What's going on? Like, what's the context of this letter here? So let's look at first who wrote the letter. Well, we know for sure, we don't have to sit there and debate about this. It was the Apostle Paul that wrote this letter to the Colossians church and so he, he's identifying himself in chapter one and verse one and also at the very end of the book in chapter four in the very last verse he also signs off as paul so paul wrote colossians while he was in prison in rome which is why colossians is referred to as one of the prison epistles and and so it would have been written about ad 60 62 most most theologians will agree on that and so the church in colossae began during paul's three-year ministry while he was in Ephesus. Now, Paul was not the founder of the Colossian church, okay? He had actually never been there, which is verified in Colossians 2, 1. We'll see that in a couple of weeks, but they had actually never even seen Paul in Colossae. So it was most likely this guy named Epaphras, which we're going to be reading about Epaphras, but he was apparently, he was saved during 
Paul's time when he was in Ephesus, when he was ministering to Epaphras had made his way there. Maybe he heard about the gospel. Maybe he heard about this apostle Paul. I don't know. But he makes his way there, and he gets saved. So it was Epaphras was actually the pastor of the church in Colossae, and most likely he was the one who founded it. So that, that's, that's who wrote it. But now, who, you know, who was it written to? So, again, we don't have to read too far into our text today to figure that one out. It was written to the church in Colossae. And Paul writes this letter. And, and, and so here's the thing about Colossae. Colossae was a city, was what was known in the tri-county or tri-city region. It, it, it was about 100 miles, give or take, east of Ephesus. And so you had Colossae, you had Laodicea, which we read about that in the book of Revelations, right? So you had Colossae, Laodicea, but then we had another city uh, called uh, Heropolis, okay? So this was kind of known as a tri-county region or tri-city region. Now, Ephesus was like the big metropolitan city, okay? It was kind of like in Atlanta or New York or Chicago, okay? So the, the other towns uh, here in Colossians and, and, and Laodicea, and Heropolis, they were smaller cities inside. Now, here's the thing. Colossae was a very thriving city. I mean, it was booming about 5th century B.C. It was blowing and going. And the reason why, there was these trade routes that had gone, were going right through Colossae. So every, all the commerce and everything was going right through that. And so this town grew, and, and Colossae was known for producing very expensive fabric dyes like the dye purple was a very expensive process to do and so that's what class a was known for but in paul's day by the time we get around to ad 6062 those trade routes had been rerouted into laodicea and all of a sudden that led to the decline of Colossae. It's kind of like, you know, back in the day in florida way, I mean way back in the bay, day back in the day there was highway 301 Okay, and then you had us1 Okay, those were pretty much the trade routes and travel routes in Florida, okay? And so you can still go down those, those, those state roads today, and you'll see remnants of these old towns that were there, right? Hotels, and, and, and back in the day, there was like uh, Stuckey's and Howard Johnson's. They were kind of like the Cracker Barrel of the day. But when you go down Highway you know, 301 or US-1 now, you just see remnants of it. You see some of these, some of these towns like almost pretty much dried up and blew away. That's kind of like what was going on in Colossae. So we know who wrote the letter. It was Paul. We know who Paul was writing it to. He's writing it to the church in Colossae. So to better help us understand our study day moving forward, we need to answer the why question. Okay, why was this letter written? Now, here's the thing about the church in Colossae. One of its strengths became one of its weaknesses eventually. Okay, so one of its strengths were there was a lot of Gentiles in Colossae. There was a lot of Jews. There was a lot of different cultures there. So Colossae's population was like really very diverse, which was a good thing, man. That's what you want to see. In a, you want to see that diversity in a city. It, it, its culture was, was very diverse. Uh, it was diverse in its languages. It was diverse in, in, in all the different races that were there. It was, it was diverse in all these different backgrounds. So this was Colossae's strength. But its strength, again, it became its weakness later on. Because with so many different backgrounds and so many different religions, one of the problems that had begun to exist in Colossae was what was known as syncretism. 
Okay, syncretism is kind of a big word. But what syncretism is, it's kind of when a, a group of persons or of two or more, or, you know, this group over here, group over here, they get together and they start discussing certain ideas and, and they, they begin to talk about different religions and different worldviews and all of a sudden they start to, to fuse these things together or synchronize them together, or the, all these different ideologies. And so when you take a little bit of teaching from over here, and you go a little bit of you know, something from this religion over here and this ideology and this worldview, and you kind of put them all together, that's syncretism. It was going on back in that day in Colossae. And so it was this kind of hodgepodge of, of that was ideas that refused to get a kind of a smorgasbord type of beliefism. But another Greek heresy that existed in this day is what is known as Gnosticism. Maybe you've heard that word before. But Gnosticism is this belief that God is good, but all matter is evil. People are evil. The earth's evil. Trees are evil. All matter is evil. And so Gnosticism or Gnosis, they believe that Jesus was less than God. They believe that, that they didn't believe it. They denied his true deity. They denied his authority. They denied his supremacy. They denied his preeminence. Okay. So Gnostics believe that uh, you had to have this secret knowledge that was higher than Scripture in order to be saved. And I got to thinking about it as I was studying on Gnosticism. I'm going, well, this is a secret knowledge, and how could you be saved? I mean, what were you supposed to do? Go up to somebody and say, hey, man, I just need to be saved. And they go, I can't tell you. It's a secret. You know, so I don't really understand it, but you had to have this secret knowledge before you get saved. This is what they believe. So Gnosticism says that humans uh, uh, you know, are these divine souls trapped in an ordinary physical body or material worth they believe that the world was made by an imperfect spirit so therefore in their rationale all matter was evil so some gnostics they saw jesus as sent by the supreme being to bring gnosis to the earth so these various groups labeled gnostics they emphasize personal spiritual knowledge over orthodox teaching or ecclesiastical authority and so it also called for the worship of angels and all this mystical experiences. So besides syncretism, besides Gnosticism, there was also a third group that existed that threatened the Colossian church. These were the Judaizers. Maybe you've seen and read those about them in the New Testament. These were both Jews and even some, some were even perhaps non-Jews. And they believed that Christians must adopt certain elements of Old Testament law as prescribed by the law of Moses in order to be saved or order to be continually saved. So these Judaizers, they had, a, you know, they had added all these different aspects of legalism for salvation, and so they were adding the necessity of circumcision before you could be saved. They, were, they added the observance of you know, Old Testament ceremonial law, dietary restrictions, okay, like crab, uh, you know, lobster, uh, shrimp, off limits. Pulled pork, nah, couldn't have that either. Not, not be saved, but they, would, they believed in keeping the various festivals and Sabbaths for salvation. So what they were literally doing, they were adding to the cross. They were adding the cross by putting conditions to be met before you could be saved. And so that's one of Satan's actually best methods from keeping people confused and to hide the simplicity of the gospel. And the thing is, man, God's already reduced the gospel down to the most simplistic form, has he not? The gospel is just so simplistic. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's by God's grace that he even gives us the faith 
that is required to believe in Jesus Christ. So my point is here, if Satan is to confuse the minds of sinners, he must do so by addition and not subtraction because the gospel has already been reduced down to the most simplest form. So, in other words, they believed that these Judaizers, that you had to keep this list of do's and don'ts in order to either be saved or to maintain your salvation. But if that was the case, then Satan could take away those conditions. And, that, and that's what I, as I was studying this, to prevent those people from being saved. And so there were no conditions. There are no rules for in order for a person to be saved or even after your salvation. But here's the thing. Since salvation is a simple fact to be believed by God's grace, then Satan's method of deceiving people has been to add to the simplicity of the gospel. And the crazy thing is, just like back in the day of the Colossians, today there are still religions today that are still adding to the finished work of the cross. They, they might as well hold up a sign that says, we'll work for salvation on the street corner. And you can work for a lot of things, but man, you cannot work for your salvation. You cannot earn your salvation from God. So with all the diversity, everything that surrounded the Colossians church, these dangerous heresies began to arise from outside the church in Colossae. These heresies were adding to the gospel. At any time that you add to the gospel, you no longer have the gospel. So the, all these dangerous heresies that they were attacking, they were actually attacking the person, the work, the authority, the deity, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So Epaphras, okay, he was so concerned about all this heresy that was starting to filter its way into the church. He makes this long journey all the way from Colossae to Rome. And here's the crazy thing about that. Rome away from Colossae was about a 1,300-mile trip. And being that the main mode of transportation back there was your feet, okay, he, perhaps he had a donkey, I don't know, maybe a horse, but probably not. But most likely, as far as most theologians agree, he probably walked this. There had been rugged terrain, mountainous trains. There's, there's a body of water that he would have across. I mean, this was a long way. So the average person, you know, you, probably most people in this room, you could walk 15 miles if you had to. But here's the thing. What about the next day? And the next day? And the next day? He would have had to walk 15 miles a day every single day for three months to make it to Colossae. I mean, unless you're Forrest Gump, you know. I mean, it, it would have probably taken him a lot longer than that, you know. I'm not really sure. But however how long it took him, Epaphras eventually makes it to Rome where Paul is in prison. And he tells Paul about all the mysticism and all the heresies that were beginning to creep into the church. And so this answers our why question. Why was the letter written it was to warn the Colossian believers of the dangers of the heresies that were coming from outside the church. But here's the thing. As Paul's writing this letter, I want you to notice he does it in such a loving way that it's a very encouraging letter. He just doesn't come out of the gate and he's blasting them, you bunch of heretics. No, he comes out and he's encouraging them in a very loving way to stay rooted and to stay grounded in knowing what you believe. He elevates Jesus above all things and that's what we're going to see throughout our study in colossians which is exactly what they needed to hear 
You know what? It's exactly what we need to hear today. Because there's a lot of different worldviews out there, right? There's a lot of different ideologies. Some of those beliefs are even creeping into the church today. And so in light of what we're seeing going on in the culture of America today, man, I don't know of a better time to be looking into the book of Colossians. So with that said, and all that background and all that context, here's what I want to do. We're going to start reading today at Colossians chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're only going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today. Okay? And so I want to kind of divide our text into two parts this morning. So first, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the marks of a growing church. And then secondly, what I want to do is look at the motives of a growing church church and as we see these marks or these characteristics these motives of a growing church and it takes may i pray it's been my prayer that we begin to see these things come to fruition right here in redemption church for the glory of god in 2021 so if you would please stand in honor of the reading of god's word and we're in colossians 1 we're going to start in verse 1 and read to verse 8 i paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae, or brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints... Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you and indeed in the whole world as it is bearing fruit and increasing as it always does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our, our beloved fellow servant, he is faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I pray that you'd open up our hearts and illuminate our minds this morning. Lord, I pray that the marks of this church in Colossae will become the marks of Redemption Church in 2021. Lord, would you help us? Lord, we need you. Just like we sing about this morning, God. Lord, we need you. So God, we just simply ask for your wisdom and your guidance, God. I pray, God, that you would guide me through your Holy Spirit as I preach your word this morning. God, thank you, Father, Lord, for sending your Son. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 1, again, we clearly see that Paul is identifying himself as the author, and he, he acknowledges that young Timothy is also with him. And then Paul begins this letter, if you've noticed, by thanking God first. He, he's thanking God for the, all these specific characteristics and the Christians in Colossae that they were displaying in their everyday lives. And so in verse 3, I want to draw your attention to something that has a massive significance important 
especially as we make our way through this journey in the book of Colossians. In verse 3, he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So with the understanding about all the heresies that had threatened the Colossian church here, Again, which was this belief that Jesus was either, you know, this hodgepodge, this syncretism or Gnosticism that, you know, believed all these weird mystical things or some of the Jews that were adding to the gospel by saying, yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's the cross plus this, it's the cross plus this. So because Paul has learned about all these heresies because Epaphras has made his way and he's telling Paul what's going on, Paul starts off this letter by clearly claiming the preeminence of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Did you notice that? This is why he says in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is significant when we pray for you. He starts off by clearly establishing the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he's not some mere other spirit that descended down from God with a multitude of other ones. He's, he's claiming the supremacy here. He's claiming the deity. He's claiming the, the, the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember, remember Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. So by Paul's statement, he, it encompasses all of that. So Paul will continue these types of statements throughout his letter established Establishing who Jesus Christ is. And I think this is super important for us today, to be honest with you. Because it reminds us of just who Jesus Christ is. He is the very Son of God. We just, we just celebrated that last week. But he's been given all authority, and he's been given all power on the earth. And he wants to invest that in our lives today as believers. But here's the thing. Man, it's just so easy. You get caught up in the everyday things in, in, in our life. There's so many things that can begin to get caught up in, and, and we become not mindful of our daily dependence on Jesus and, and realize just who Jesus is. It's like, man, I, most vehicles, you probably do, I'm sure you do, most vehicles have a spare tire in the trunk, right? Yeah, pretty much everybody, I've got one underneath my truck, my, my wife in her car, there's, there's, there's one in there, and, and uh, we don't think much about those spare tires ever, do we? We only think about the spare tire when we need it. And so sometimes, if we're not careful, we kind of treat Jesus as if he's kind of like spare tire Jesus. Oh, we know he's there if we need him. We know he's back there if we need him, we can get him out. And so when the flat tires in life come along, you know, when the marriage problems and the financial problems and the health problems and, you know, all these things of job loss, when these, these kind of flat tire moments come along in our life, all of a sudden we begin to realize just how dependent upon Jesus we really are. And so we get Jesus out of the trunk. We want Jesus to fix our little, our deal that's going on, Right. And maybe Jesus, by his grace and his mercy, maybe he does. Maybe he helps us through that situation. But sometimes all of a sudden, man, we, we don't. We, we realize how dependent upon Jesus we are. And so, I mean, we do this stuff, right? I mean, am I the only one that kind of, you know, this, this happens to? Or is it just me or what? But it's easy to happen in our lives. 
And after Jesus sees you through whatever that moment, that flower tower moment is in your life, after you, you, you get through that moment, all of a sudden, when life begins to get a lot better, so many times what happens is we begin to put spare tire Jesus back in the trunk. Oh, we know he's there. We know he's there and we can, we can call on him if we need him. But we really don't think much about him other than maybe on a Sunday morning. And Paul starts off his letter by boldly claiming that we put it up. By, you, got, you got the verse up there? Verse 3? No? All right, I'll read it to you. That's what we got back up, right? We always, he said, always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul is establishing this theme in his letter to the Colossians. He's saying we're always thankful for the fact of who Jesus Christ is. And, and, and not just thankful when we need him, but always thankful so Paul is clearing up something right off the bat as he's writing this letter. By making this statement, Paul is saying in verse 3 to the Colossians, he's saying, our Lord, our Savior, he is the Son of God. He is co-equal with the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the creator of all things. He's the one who gives life, and through him is the only way to receive eternal salvation. So Paul has learned from Epaphras about all the heresies that's coming into the Colossian church. So Paul comes straight out of the gate, and he's making this huge statement that says, again, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. So Paul is encouraging them by saying that when we think about you, we're praying. You ever had anybody just text you or call you and say, hey, man, God put you on my heart. just want to let you know I'm praying for you. How encouraging is that? I'm so fortunate because I have some very godly men in my life, and every now and then I'll get this text from them. Say, hey, man, God put you on my heart this morning. I want to let you know I'm praying, praying for you. And every now and then, you know, whenever God puts somebody on your heart, hey, you need, heads up. There's a reason for that. You need to be praying for that person. But how encouraging is it to that person when you send them a text or you call them, hey, man, I, you know, there may not be anything to do, but God put you on my heart this morning. And I just want to let you know that I'm praying for you. So Paul here, he's starting off his letter by assuring that he was praying for them. Now, in verse 4 is where we begin to see the marks of a growing church that Paul is so grateful for. So there are three marks of a growing church in our text today, and I want us to look at them because this is what Paul was grateful for. The first one, the first characteristic, the first mark is that their faith in God. Their faith was strong. He was thankful for that. The second one is their love for the church. In other words, his lo their love for the people. And the third one is they were producing fruit. And I pray that these marks for Redemption Church come to fruition in 2021 and i believe that some of them already are but man can we do better i think we can so let's look at verses four and five and verse four is a continuing for on from verse three so i want to read them all together starting back at verse three we always thank god the father of our lord jesus christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith 
in Christ Jesus. Notice he says, your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So the first thing that we see that the Apostle Paul mentions here is that he was thankful for their faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing about that word faith. In the Greek, it actually means to have a complete trust or a reliance on something. It means to have this full conviction. Faith means that you're persuaded, you're absolutely positively persuaded that something is so true that you're willing to put your trust in it. It's far more than just some like intellectual assent going on here. It involves obedience. See, this whole concept of obedience is equated with faith throughout the New Testament. So the faith that Paul is referring to, it's not like a, I think so, I kind of hope so. It's not like the kind of faith that you, like when you need to get to the other side of the river and you get to the bridge and that bridge looks really sketchy like it's really rotten, and you think, I don't know if I have enough faith to cross this bridge. I think it might hold me. I hope it holds me. And so you pursue over that bridge. That's not faith. That's just plain old wishful thinking right there, right? But the kind of faith in our text today, not only this is what Paul is talking about, the, the saving faith in Jesus Christ, but he's also talking about the, everything that that saving faith encompasses. Like the kind of faith that there's not a shred of doubt in your mind. Like all of a sudden you, you go down the road and you see this other bridge. Man, it's got them big old huge pressure-treated like telephone pole kind of thick pilings are holding that bridge up. And it's got like these two-by-twelves that are supporting it. And on that, you have two-by-sixes. And you know, hey, there's no question in my mind, man. I, got, I know that bridge is going to hold me up. It's that kind of knowing faith. That's that ensuring faith. It means that you are leaning on your entire being on something. All your thought, all of your motion, your, your entire person. You are willing to lean on something as and it doesn't matter if you can see it. It doesn't matter if you're an eyewitness to it or not. But you're leaning firmly and you are trusting by the substance of faith alone. That's why Hebrews 11.1 1 is just an awesome definition of faith. It says, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction, or some translations say, the evidence of things not seen. Did you notice it's not talking about mere hope here? but this faith is an assurance i'm standing firm on this because i believe this there's no doubt in my mind and so true faith is not always based on you know hard physical evidence or anything that we can see and i think that's why the world struggles so much with with, with faith i mean they don't understand what true faith is of the bible and uh, i mean the concept of faith in the world sounds great I mean, if you go out to somebody out there, you know, and say, hey, man, you got faith? They go, oh, yeah, I got me some faith. They really don't understand what faith is, but a lot of people think they have faith. But what they really mean is they have a kind of a wishful thinking or like a, a blind faith or, or like they're taking a leap of faith. But if the definition of faith in the Bible is this is assurance of things hoped for, 
the evidence of things not seen, then that's not wishful thinking. That's not a leap of faith. Which is why, I think this is why some Christians struggle in their faith because they think this whole thing is, our Christian faith is wrapped up in, you know, listen to a few Christian songs on the radio on the way to work. Or, or maybe attending church every now and then on Sunday. And so what happens in the modern day American church is that we have all these syncretisms, we have all these relativisms going on in the church today. And, and, and what that is is actually adding to the gospel that we're not supposed to be adding to. Because again, anytime you add to the gospel, then you don't have the gospel at all. And this is why when the flat tires in life come, uh, the struggling on again, off again, Christian begins to struggle with this type of faith that Paul is talking about here. And it's easy to begin to think more about adding stuff, like thinking, you know, that it will cause God to love you more. Like, you know, well, I, I just need to come to church more often. Maybe I need to pray a little bit more at mealtime and what the heck, I'll even read my Bible every now and then. And sometimes we think if we do these things, that's going to make God love us more. But God's love is unconditional. See, we should do those things because of our love for God. Those things should be flowing out of our life because of our love for God, not because we think that God's going to love us more if we do these things. And some of those things may be good. Like maybe if I, maybe if I do, maybe if I attend church a little bit more, but can I say this? If you are doing those things because you think you're going to earn God's favor, then you don't understand the gospel. You have a distorted view of the gospel. And if you're adding to the gospel, you have a distorted view of faith. See, our worship, again, should flow from our faith in Jesus Christ, our love for Him, not because of our uncomfortable situation, not because of those you know, flat tire moments in life that come up that cause us to do that. The same faith in Jesus that saved your soul, it's the same type of faith that will sustain you through the flat tires in life. And I've said all that to say this, that faith in Jesus is a mark of a rooted and grounded church. Faith in Jesus must be the mark of redemption church in 2021. So here in verse 4, Paul was thankful for their faith in Jesus Christ, who was the very object, the very substance the sustainer of faith. So the next mark of a growing church we're going to see in our text today is the word L-O-V-E, love. Let's look at that. Look at verse 4 again because I want to emphasize this part of the verse. It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So the second thing that we see that the church in Colossae was known for is that they had this love for people which is what I'm praying for Redemption Church, that we will be known for a church that loves people. To have a love for Jesus is to have a love for people. Now, the interesting thing about the word love as it's being used here is the word agape. Now, most of you probably know about the word agape, okay? But for those of you who may not, what that word agape means is just a one-way, unconditional love. Agape is not contingent upon receiving love back from someone. It, it doesn't work like that. It's, it's one way, unconditional love. 
Agape love is not just, you know, warm feeling, this fuzzy emotion, but it's just unconditional decision that we have made. So the love that Paul's talking about here begins with a desire to please God and not a feeling or an emotion. So how can we know that biblical agape love is not an emotion? Well, because of the fact you can't command emotion. If I was a committee, be happy. Like, try that with your kid when you discipline them after, after you know, you've, you've gotten on to them. Try, be happy. It's just not going to fly. It's never going to, you cannot command an emotion there. But the love that Paul is referring to is a willingness to help someone or to do something for someone because you know that God desires that we have that kind of love for people. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're probably thinking, well, you can't command, you can't command love either. You're right, I can't, but God can. Actually, God does. Consider these commands. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, God commands it. And in these verses, if they were a feeling first, then they cannot be commanded. Now listen to this statement in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. In the Bible, love is always tied to giving. Giving's tied to love. They're inseparable. Because biblical love is always tied to that. It's this giving of ourselves to serve others. This is the agape type of love that Paul is talking about here. But agape love is, is, is not a feeling first. It is actually learned. And the more I learn about Jesus, the more I begin to love him. And the more I begin to love him, the greater my desire is to fellowship with him and to know him. Now watch this. The greater my desire, as I begin to love Jesus more, the greater my desire is to become obedient. And the more I become obedient, the more my faith in Jesus increases. So Paul gives thanks that the Colossians loved all the saints. Their love was a non-selective. It was unconditional. Christ's love not only drew the Colossian believers closer to Christ, but also grew them closer to each other. Does that mean that we aren't to have the same, you know, emotional attachment to everybody, like we're supposed to have the same attachment to everybody. No, it doesn't mean that. But true biblical love is much more than any emotion. It's a sacrificial, unconditional decision to serve others because you care about what God thinks and you care about them. So when we show that godly type of love to someone, when we sacrifice ourselves, when we meet that person's need, then our love for fellow Christians is a reflection of God's love for us. It is also obedient to his command, love one another just as I have loved you. So without a love for both Jesus and people, no church is going to be rooted. No church is going to be growing. So the next mark of a growing church that we see is they were bearing fruit. Did you notice that in our text today? Look at verses 5 through 8. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, 
which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our fellow our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So again, Epaphras had started the Colossian church here. The gospel had come to Epaphras by way of Paul. And then the gospel had come to Colossae by way of Epaphras. And the gospel was bearing fruit to the whole world by the time AD 62 rolls around when this letter was written. And see, the thing is, Satan had thrown everything at the gospel. But none of it had worked. He thought if he could tempt Jesus, he could make Jesus fall. But that didn't work. He tried to get the Pharisees, remember, to put pressure on Jesus and Jesus' followers. It didn't work either. He thought if he could get the Romans to crucify Jesus, then that would finally put an end to this thing. But Jesus rose. Amen? See, Satan thought if he could just get Jesus' followers now to doubt that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had died. But that didn't work. Then Satan thought if he could get Saul, okay, and the other Pharisees to persecute Christians, after Jesus died, then surely that's going to that's squeeze this thing out. It's going to put an end to it. But it caused the whole gospel to spread from Jerusalem to the other parts of the world. And then Paul gets saved. He preaches the gospel everywhere. People are getting saved. And then Satan thinks, if, well, if I can get Paul and Peter, if I can throw these rascals in jail, that okay, they'll, they'll finally squeeze. But what happened? People in the jail get saved. The guards get saved. This whole thing is just blowing up and continuing on. And the believers in Colossae are now spreading the gospel. As Paul puts it in our text today in verse 6. The Colossians, which this is the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, as it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of truth, so by now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, well, well Donald, whatever happened to the motives? Did, did you forget that? No. Actually, we've been staring at them the whole time we've been in this text. I want you to look at them. I'm going to put them on the screen. Hopefully, we have them on the screen. Yes, there they are. Our motives is our faith in Jesus in verse 4. Our motives of a, the marks of a growing church is the truth of the gospel in verse 5. Our motivation must come from hearing and understanding the grace of God that we've already seen in verse 6. So without those three things, our motivation will never happen. These are what the marks of a growing church are. These are the motivations. And so without those three things, man, it's just not going to happen. But let's go back. I want to review the marks of a growing church. Their faith, Love, and when we're loving on people, guess what that does? When we're witnessing, we care enough about people that we're going to tell them about Jesus, it produces fruit. You see it? 
See, if the gospel doesn't motivate the church to a greater faith in Jesus, if the gospel doesn't motivate us to a better understanding of our love for people, it's not going to produce fruit. Let's get busy, Redemption Church. I, I think we have some things that... Ever since I got here, I've been, I've, been, I've been telling you, man, pass out these cards. You just don't know who you're going to give it to. You just don't know who's going to walk through those doors. You just don't know who's going to get saved. This is how we spread the gospel. This is how we open doors for a gospel conversation. You guys are not going to believe what we're going to see next week. It's going to be so amazing. You know what it is? Come back next week and you find out. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, would you help us, Lord? God, we've seen all these marks of a growing church, God. And Lord, I know everybody here, it is our desire to see these things come to fruition here at Redemption in 2021. But Lord, without you, we can do nothing. So God, we ask for your help. Lord, we ask for you to motivate us by the reading of your word, by us drawing closer to you in our relationship and falling more in love with you. God, that's what motivates us. As we become closer to you, Lord, you, you draw closer to us. That's what your word tells us. So, Lord, help us to fall more in love with you. Because if we we'll fall more in love with you, then we begin to love people more. We begin to have a heart for people, God. Lord, we want to see people get saved, God. But we know that we must take that step in obedience to be faithful to what your word tells us. Lord, we need you. Just like the song that we sang, we need you every hour. Oh, Lord, we need you. So, Lord, would you help us, God? Would you put a fire in our hearts, God, and a passion for people, Lord? Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you